I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, this evening to the book of Genesis, chapter 48. If you have already looked in your bulletin, you will know that our text this evening will be taken from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21, and so uh, we will be looking there at the faith of Jacob, and the example of that faith that he mentions there is found here in this passage in Genesis 48. So to familiarize ourselves once again with that account, let's read this chapter together. I'd like to begin by reading back in uh, chapter 47 and verse 29, and we will go through to the end of 48. Follow along with me, please, then, as I read. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, and there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, And he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, 
crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into, into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Well, brethren, before we look together at this passage of Scripture, let's once again bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are our God, that the one whom Jacob served, the one whom God, that Jacob trusted in, that that God is our God as well. And Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious and a merciful God. We thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. And we thank you, our God, that you provide all that is necessary, both in this life for your people and also in the life to come. Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours through the person of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that as we gather together this evening to spend some time looking together at the faith of Jacob, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts and bless our time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, our text this evening is found in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21 where the writer to the Hebrews writes these words, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. If you're here this evening and you are at all familiar with the life of Joseph, you would certainly agree with the statement that his earthly pilgrimage was characterized by numerous faults and numerous failures. And if we were to judge his life based solely on his many sins and his many weaknesses, we would be left with a very faulty, one-sided view of this man's character. However, in spite of his shortcomings, the Word of God also makes it very clear 
that Jacob possessed a very deep personal interest in the covenant that God has had made with his grandfather Abraham and also with his father Isaac. But in Genesis 28, when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, we are told that he came to a place called Luz and laid down there to sleep for the night. And we are told in God's word that as he slept, he dreamed a dream. And in his dream, a ladder was set up on the earth, and the top of it went all the way up to heaven. And as he was looking at that ladder, he saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon the ladder. And it was then that the Lord spoke to Jacob, and he said to him these words. He said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and, you will, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. The account then tells us that when Jacob woke up from sleeping, it tells us that he was afraid and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And then we are told that when Jacob got up in the morning that he took the stone that he had used to place his head on as a pillow and he poured oil on top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel, which is the house of God. And then he made the following vow. He said, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. In spite of his many shortcomings, scripture plainly reveals to us that Jacob was a man who without a doubt trusted in God and greatly valued the promises that the Lord himself had made to him. And this is very, this is clearly made evident in many instances throughout the biblical account of his life. For example, you remember in Genesis 25, we see that Jacob viewed the birthright which his brother Esau had despised as something that held unspeakable value for him. And even though we might question the means that he used in order to acquire it, the fact of the matter was that it was something that he greatly desired. And in the end, if you're familiar with that account, he was successful in obtaining it. Another example of Jacob's trust in God and the value that he placed in the promises of God is found a couple of chapters later over in Genesis 27. In this account, we are told that he so coveted the blessings of God for himself that he agreed to go along with his mother Rebecca's covet with, with his mother Rebecca's plan to deceive his father Isaac 
into thinking that he was Esau in order that he might obtain the blessing instead of his brother Esau. And once again, as in the case of the birthright, Jacob was able to obtain it. Having fled from home for fear of his brother Esau, he spent many years in Haran working for his uncle Laban. And it was there that the Lord blessed him in all that he did. And when circumstances became such that it became necessary for he and his uncle Laban to part ways, Jacob then returned home. And upon hearing the news that Jacob was coming to meet him with 400 men, he then sought the help and deliverance of God by laying hold of the promises that God had made to him in Bethel many years earlier. He prayed in Genesis 32, 9 through 12, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come back and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. And that night we are told in the latter verses of Genesis 32 that he wrestled with and prevailed with God. Jacob's earnest desire for the blessing of God was once again manifested here in these verses, not only in his actions, but in the expression that came from his heart through his words, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And it was then that the word of God told us that the, that the Lord blessed him there. Now with these examples in mind, it would seem that as the biblical account of Jacob's life continues to unfold in the book of Genesis, that his faith seems to shine more and more brightly, if you will, during the latter years of his life. And the most notable example of that faith, as we find pointed out here by the writer to the Hebrews, is exhibited for us in the passage that we have already read together here in Genesis chapter 48. Once again, we are told in Hebrews 11:21 that by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, as we consider together this passage, I want us to note four things concerning the faith of Jacob that the writer makes note of here in the text before us this evening. First of all, I want us to consider together the nature of Jacob's faith. The nature of Jacob's faith. The writer here says, by faith, Jacob. And then secondly, I want us to look at the occasion of Jacob's faith. And that was, as he writes here, when he was dying. And then thirdly, I want us to examine the circumstances of Jacob's faith, when he blessed each 
of the sons of Joseph. And then lastly, I want us to note the disposition of Jacob's faith. As the writer adds finally here in our text, and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. And I trust that the Lord be pleased to use this account to encourage my heart and your heart as well this evening as we consider it together. Notice with me then, first of all, from our text, the nature of Jacob's faith. The nature of Jacob's faith. Our text this evening begins with the statement, by faith, Jacob. In the latter part of Hebrews 10, the writer is seeking to encourage those to whom he is writing to remain steadfast in their faith. There was the tendency on the part of some Jewish converts to pine after the old Levitical system. And as a result, they needed to be reminded once again of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his atoning sacrifice and in his priestly office as compared to the Levitical priesthood and the continual offering of animal sacrifices that could never take away sin. Another issue for these believers was the intense persecution that they faced for the sake of following Christ. After their conversion, these people, the Hebrews says, endured what he refers to as a great conflict of sufferings. They had been made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. The writer to the Hebrews said that they had accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. And in the midst of these trials, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that they joyfully accepted and endured all of these things because of the assurance that they possessed a better, a better and an eternal possession. And so with these things in mind, the writer then encourages these people of God in verse 35 and 36, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. He then reminds them of the truth that has been characteristic of the children of God since the very beginning of time, and that is this, that the just shall live by faith. Their experience was no different in many ways than that of those who had come before them. For like the saints who had gone before, they possessed the same faith that they did, a faith that preserves the soul even in the midst of the most demanding of circumstances, a faith that will enable the believer to run with patience the race that is set before them. And it is from this context that the writer then launches into this glorious description in Hebrews chapter 11 of the nature, the fruits, and the many examples of faith that he has just been speaking of. It's important for us to be reminded at this point of the fact that genuine faith is comprised of three very important elements. It is comprised of knowledge, it's comprised of conviction, and it's comprised of trust. 
The first element of genuine biblical faith is knowledge. We know that faith cannot exist in a vacuum of knowledge. There must be truth that the individual must be informed of in order for them to exercise biblical faith. Romans 10 and verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, we must first hear in order for us to be able to know what it is to be believed. But the second element of biblical faith is conviction or belief. Not only must we know the truth, but we must also believe that what God has said in his word is indeed true. Genuine faith is convinced of the truthfulness of God's word. It does not doubt what God has said. The third element of true biblical faith is trust. Having heard the word and having been convinced in our heart that what it says is indeed true, the question now is, what effect, if any, is that word that I have heard and believe, what effect is it going to have upon my life? There are many who know the truth contained in God's word, and there are many who are indeed convinced of its truthfulness. But that's as far as it goes in their life. Genuine faith goes one step further. It is knowledge that passes into conviction, and then that conviction passes into confidence or into trust. It's the placement of one's eternal destiny upon the truth of divine revelation. It's a complete trust and confidence in God that manifests itself in how we think, how we act, and how we respond to the truth of God's word in all of the circumstances of life. The Puritans used to refer to this kind of trust by using the term recumbency to describe this final and critical element of faith. When you came in here this evening, I noticed that all of you just came in and you sat down in the pew. I don't think that anybody, I don't think I saw anybody come in and kind of test the pew first of all to make sure that it would hold up your weight. I don't, didn't see anybody call anybody over to sit down for them to make sure that it was going to hold up their weight and then you would go ahead and sit down. No, these pews have been here for probably a hundred years. They've held the weight of many people over the course of that time. And so with that knowledge, you just came in and you put all of your weight upon the pew. And that's what recumbency is. It means to place one's full weight with confidence upon something. Spurgeon describes the nature of faith in this way. He says that faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. And it is not an impractical thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. In other words, when Scripture says, by faith Jacob, 
What it is saying is simply that Jacob believed that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he had promised he would do and then he confidently expected it of him. And that, as a result, had a profound effect upon how Jacob lived his life. Biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in wishful thinking. It is not a blind trust. Biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith, rather, is a settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen but has been promised by God himself, will actually come to pass because God has said that he is going to bring it about. Thus, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, and eternally trustworthy. Hebrews 11 and 1 says, Now faith is the assurance. Some of your Bibles say that faith is the substance of things hoped for or of things expected. It is the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The person of faith is committed to what his mind and his spirit are convinced to be absolutely true. It is based upon God's word, not on what he can see or what he has experienced. The phrase, the conviction of things not seen, carries with it the same truth as the first statement does, the assurance of things hoped for, except for the fact that it takes that truth just a little bit further. It implies a response. It implies an outward manifestation of an assurance that resides within the soul. The person of faith is a person who lives what he believes. His life is committed to what his mind and his spirit are absolutely convinced of to be true. We see this in many of the examples that are given here in Hebrews chapter 11. And there's an unmistakable relationship here we see over and over again between genuine faith and the action of the believer. We are told that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. We are told that Noah, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. We are told here in Hebrews 11 that Abraham obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. We are told that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And the writer goes on to say of others that they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, they obtained promises, they shut the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight. 
By that same faith, the writer here says that women received back their dead by resurrection. But then he also goes on to say that others were tortured, not accepting their reliefs so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And this same faith that motivated the thinking and actions of so many throughout the course of history had a profound influence upon the life of God's servant Jacob as well. And as a result, the writer begins by stating, as he states and describes the faith of so many, he begins by saying, by faith, Jacob. And so having seen then in the first place the nature of Jacob's faith, I want us to note secondly now the occasion of Jacob's faith the occasion of Jacob's faith. Our text informs us that the example of faith that he is about to point out in the life of Jacob occurred at the very end of his life. It occurred at the point of his life when he was dying. The text tells us by faith Jacob when he was dying. This fact was confirmed several times in the passage that we read earlier in Genesis 48, in the beginning of Genesis 47. It began with the words, when the time for Israel to die drew near. And that passage ended with Jacob himself confirming his imminent death by saying to his son Joseph, behold, I am about to die. For many believers, the hour of death brings with it the most notable expressions and genuine expressions or demonstrations of, divine, of genuine faith. And what a blessing it is to hear of or to personally behold a child of God who has come to the end of his earthly pilgrimage, gladly and consciously leave the world behind him and focus his full attention on the promised glory that waits him on the other side of death. As D.L. Moody lay on his deathbed, he said to his son William, who is standing beside him there, he said to him at one point, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. This is no dream. Will, it is beautiful. It is like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it for years. When Mr. Valiant for Truth came to the river of death in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan tells us that he called for his friends. He gathered them together and he said to them, My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles, who now will be my rewarder. And then Bunyan continues to tell us that many accompanied him to the riverside, into which as he went in, he said, Death, where is thy sting? And as he went then further into the river, he then said, Grave, where is thy victory? 
And so Bunyan said that he passed over and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. Matthew Henry rightly stated that though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout our whole lives, it is especially so when we come to die. Faith has its great work to do at the last, to help believers to finish well, to die to the Lord, so as to honor him by patience, hope, and joy, so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's word and the excellency of his ways for the conviction and establishment of all that attend them during their dying moments. No doubt that God used death scenes such as Jacob's to remind his children of the fact that he who has begun a good work in them most will most certainly complete it. And that God who has enabled his people to exercise faith in the midst of the trials and in the midst of the difficulties of, the, of their life will most certainly never leave them and never forsake them in the hour of death. In Hebrews 11, we see very clearly that the writer of the book, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, sets before us at length not only the nature, the fruits, and the triumphs of faith, but he also reminds us of its power to support the believer's soul, to comfort his spirit, and to direct his will in the midst of his final earthly struggle, that is, in the hour of his death. Well, having reminded his readers then of the nature of Jacob's faith and the occasion of Jacob's faith, let us now consider thirdly the circumstances of Jacob's faith. The circumstances of Jacob's faith. Our text continues by giving us here a brief statement regarding the circumstances under which Jacob's faith was demonstrated that is more fully revealed to us over in the passage that we read earlier in Genesis 48. It says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. We noted in the earlier reading of that passage that the blessing that was to be given to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, was not supposed to be an equal blessing, but rather it was intended to be a discriminating one. The clearest feature of dying Jacob's faith is most clearly seen in the blessing of the sons of Joseph. When Joseph brought his two sons before their grandfather to receive the patriarchal blessing, we read that Joseph placed Manasseh, who was the older son, nearest to Jacob's right hand, and then Ephraim closest to Jacob's left. And Joseph's purpose in doing this was that Manasseh, because he was the firstborn, might receive the first and therefore the greatest portion of the blessing that Jacob was going to bestow. And it was at this moment that the faith of Jacob would be tested the most. 
We know at this time that Joseph was the governor over all of the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in authority and power. But not only that, but we also know that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And so with these two things in mind, it became necessary for Jacob to withstand at this moment the will of Joseph because he knew that it was the will of God that the greater blessing was going to be given to his younger grandson, Ephraim, even though that was contrary to the will of his son, Joseph. We read, we read what happened beginning in verse 14, where we are told that Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and then his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. This is the manner in which the blessing was to be bestowed. Once again, God had ordained that the younger son was to be preferred above the elder. And that is God's prerogative. And he has the right to distribute his favor and his blessings as he pleases. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 20 and verse 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is what, with what, is what my own? And so here Jacob submissively bows to the sovereign will of God in spite of Joseph's strong disapproval. The text tells us here that when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Joseph's displeasure did not in any way deter Jacob from obeying the clearly revealed will of God to him regarding this matter. And so we are told that Jacob, his father, refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And it was at this point that Jacob's faith shines the brightest. We see here that despite his sick and decaying body, Jacob exhibited at this moment an undiminished spiritual strength. Though the years had weakened him physically, Jacob remained firm in faith and in the exercise of it. He repeated to Joseph the words, I know, my son, I know. Jacob had heard from God. He believed that what God had told him was the truth. And as a result, he humbly submitted himself to that word and would not in any way be influenced by the will of man, especially the will of his son Joseph. And it's plain that it was by faith and not by sight that the dying Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph as he did. Humanly speaking, how profitable would it be, how probable would it be that these two sons of Joseph, who were princes of Egypt, 
would forsake the land of their birth and move up to the land of Canaan. And more than that, how improbable was it that they would become separate tribes in Israel? But Jacob believed that it would happen. Once again, here in this passage, Jacob, in the closing hours of his life, recognized and expressed his confidence and trust in the covenant that God had made with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, believing that those promises would be carried on through Joseph's sons as well, Manasseh and Ephraim. Scripture tells us that Jacob blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. His words here express the faith that we as the people of God are to live by. The promises that God has made to us in his word are the foundation of all of our blessings, both in this world as well as in the world to come. And as a result, they are to be embraced. We are to draw our daily strength from them and are to walk all the days of our lives in light of them. The man or woman who orders their life in such a manner will most certainly have every reason to rejoice and be confident not only throughout their life, but also in the hour of their death. Well, having seen then the nature of Jacob's faith and the occasion of Jacob's faith, the circumstances of Jacob's faith, let us now consider lastly the disposition of Jacob's faith. The disposition of his faith. Our text concludes by reminding us of Jacob's disposition in the exercise of this faith as we see here in our passage. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. The reference here appears to refer to Jacob's disposition just prior to the blessing of the sons of Joseph as recorded for us in the latter part of Genesis 47. It says there that when the time of Israel, the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. 
This request that we find recorded here that Jacob makes to be buried in Canaan was much more than just a sentimental wish on the part of the patriarch Jacob. It was a clear demonstration of faith and an exhibition of his unwavering confidence in the promises that God had made not only to Abraham and to Isaac, but also to himself as well. Jacob didn't care about the details surrounding his burial. The only thing that mattered to Jacob, according to this text here, was where he would be buried. His body must not be laid to rest with the ungodly Egyptians, but it was in the burying place of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, that he wished to be buried. And so he asked Joseph to place his hand under his thigh and made him swear that his wishes would be carried out as he had asked. This signified how important this issue was to Jacob. And after Joseph swore to his father that he would carry out his wishes, we are told that Jacob bowed in worship at the head of the bed. The writer to the Hebrews adds that he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob obviously was confined at this point to his bed due to his sickness and due to his old age. However, we read that having secured the promise from Joseph that his, that his will be carried out regarding his burial in Canaan, he then mustered the little strength that he had to sit upright in the bed and then bowing his body to worship God, he then did so leaning upon the top of his staff. And in this simple act of reverence and faith, Jacob acknowledged his utter dependence upon his covenant-keeping God, that he was indeed a stranger and pilgrim upon the earth, and that he was weary of this present world and longed to depart from it and enter into glory. Jacob praised God for all that he had done for him throughout his life and for the wonderful prospect that he had of eternal glory. We read at the end of Genesis 49 that when Jacob had finished charging his sons, that he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What a blessing it is that the Holy Spirit inspired this writer to depict the patriarch Jacob in the final moments of his life engaged in the worship of his covenant-keeping God. Balaam said in Numbers 23 and verse 10, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Well, brethren, may we, like Jacob, be so blessed in our final hours. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you this evening for this example of great faith. Father, we thank you for the life of Jacob. And Lord, though even that we know that he was a sinner, that he had many shortcomings and faults, yet Lord, we are reminded here through the writer to the Hebrews that he was a man of great faith. Lord, we thank you for this example of faith. 
Uh, we thank you for this example of triumphant faith, even in the time of death. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts through these things. Lord, may our faith be just like that. May we possess a triumphant faith. And may our example be an encouragement, not only to those who do not know you, to come to faith and trust in yourself, but may it also be an encouragement to one, as, one another as well. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.